Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. My fellow cardio nerds, we are incredibly excited for today's Pulse Check to learn more about cardiac amyloidosis directly from Dr. Ron Wittellis from Stanford. This episode is the fourth and final part of our immersive journey into the jungle of beta-pleated sheets in the heart. Please be sure to check out parts one through three to prepare for today's discussion. But first, I want to tell you how honored I am to be joined by Dr. Ashley Bach. Thanks, Amit. I'm happy to be here. Now, friends, Ashley is a genuine cardio nerd. After earning her medical degree at the University of Colorado, she completed her internal medicine residency training at Duke University. From there, she came to the Cleveland Clinic for General Cardiology Fellowship and stayed on for advanced heart failure training. She was not only a star fellow, she was also my chief fellow. And as a chief, she not only made our program better, but also did something very special for me personally. Now, Ashley, I don't think you remember this, but when I was finishing up my residency, you emailed my incoming class of uh, my co-fellows asking us for our scheduled requests. And my very first request for you was to have extra time off in the beginning of fellowship. As awkward as that request is, it was because my wife and I were expecting our first child. Mm -hmm. And you not only managed to give me the the regular two weeks off, but you paired me up on a month-long heart failure rotation that typically only requires one fellow, and you paired me on with Karthik. And so it just gave me a lot of flexibility, and along came through in the first week of fellowship, which was terrible timing, but that extra time and flexibility just was so special, and I think completely timeless uh, for us. And so, you know, I just want to thank you for starting off my fellowship and parenthood on such a positive note. You're very welcome. Um, I appreciate that story. I feel I feel um, like that was a very obviously important time in your life. And and I knew that was going to be a big a big deal. And, and I think, you know, in medicine, we try to make sure that we're also not only helping each other through training and getting through the rigor of, of clinical duties and things like that, but also with these life events that come up. So. Well, we, we very much appreciated it. And, you know, you were just such an effective chief for our fellowship. Um, I'm wondering, what did you take away from that experience? So... You know, I felt very honored when my class selected me to be their chief fellow. Um, I think it's interesting the way that the Cleveland Clinics does this and has the class actually select who they want to be their representative because um, to me to have a group of 14 people that entrusted those responsibilities in me and, and trusted me with even kind of some intimate details that come up in their lives that are part of being chief that are outside, like I mentioned before, of medicine um, was very special. So running the general cardiology fellowship can be quite a task at times just because with 45 fellows, you're trying to balance um, all of their lives and also professionally what they want from the program and what they want to get out of the program while making sure that you also are, are ensuring all the clinical duties are covered. So I think just learning how to balance all of that and to be fair was a huge thing. And for me, I tried to stress that part more than anything because I never wanted to f- have people feel like they weren't an integral part of the decision-making process and that they weren't in charge of their own career and their own experience. So I think trying to balance out what you had to do with what people wanted to do was a big part of it. I'm sure. And how to make this fellowship the best it could be for every individual to move their career forward. Um, 
that was a big part of me of that for me. Um, and then one of the perks, I think, of being a, a chief fellow was that I got to meet a lot of other folks from all over the country who would come to give grand rounds, Dr. Wattellis actually being one of them. <laughs> um, but That's very cool. but it, that was a wonderful experience, too, because then you get to interact with folks on more of a personal level, have dinner in the small group with mm-hmm. other co-fellows. And I always tried to get as many other co-fellows um, as I could at those dinners, just because I think it's important to to develop this um, network, you know, with folks and, and have these open dialogues about cardiology and medicine and patient care and trying to move the field forward um, collectively. And, and a lot of these dinners, we, you know, those are the things we would talk about because I think everybody has a different spin on how they would treat a condition and mm-hmm. things they do differently at other programs. And um, and that was just really a really special part of it as well. Oh, I'm sure. And I, I wonder, do you think... The time that you spent here as a chief, did it at all make you interested in having a leadership role later on in your career? Absolutely. I mean, I think if anything, it, it furthered that kind of passion and desire in me to do, to be in those roles. Um, I think being part of something that you kind of help the fellowship grow and become better and hopefully leave it better than you started with. I think that's a lesson that carries on at any time in your career. And it's definitely something I'd like moving forward to do. Well, that's awesome. Well, I, for one, am very thankful that you were my chief. And I'm so glad that you were able to join us today for this recording. For the lawyers, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology directly from expert cardiologists. Now, let's see if we can get Dr. Wattellis on the phone. Hi, Dr. Wattellis. Welcome to the Nerds podcast. Happy to be here. Dr. Wattellis, I'm here with Dr. Ashley Bach. She is now an advanced heart failure fellow here at the Cleveland Clinic, and I believe you met her last year during your visit to Cleveland when she was our chief fellow for the General Fellowship. I sure did. Hi, Ashley. Hi. Um, so we're so glad you're joining us today on Cardio Nerds. For our listeners, Dr. Wattellis requires no introduction, but Amit gave me a script, so here we go. Um, so Dr. Wattellis attended the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. He left the Chicago winter behind for sunny Palo Alto, California, to complete both internal medicine and cardiology training at Stanford University, where he has also served both as chief resident and chief fellow. He is highly regarded in both the heart failure and medical education communities. He is co-director of both the Stanford Amyloid Center and the Sarcoidosis Program, as well as the program director of the Stanford Internal Medicine Residency Program. He is also an associate editor for JAK Cardio-Oncology. I would love to share his long list of accolades, but I'm sure that Dr. Wattellis has to get back to recruiting a new class of bright Stanford interns. Dr. Wattellis, we are all very excited to learn from you. And for those who don't know, I met you when uh, you and the Stanford Residency Leadership were visiting us at Hopkins last academic year, and I had the privilege of hosting you on my team's bedside rounds. And I remember very clearly that the sharp young student doctor was presenting a complicated case of a patient with numerous metabolic arrangements with likely, unfortunately, a new diagnosis of advanced lung cancer. And you, on the spur of the moment, gave us these beautiful pearls about differentiating PTH-dependent versus PTH-independent causes of hypercalcemia. I really enjoyed learning from you then, and I'm super excited to learn more from you today. 
That was a really fun visit. Uh, thanks to you and the whole Hopkins team for uh, inviting us. Then we do an exchange program with another big academic residency program each year. And it's uh, one of the highlights of the year. So thanks for your hospitality. Oh, it was such a pleasure for all of us. So uh, let's get right to it. Our first question for you is, so the stage is a patient where we have a high index of suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis. And based on the gammopathy panel, we're concerned at this point for AL cardiac amyloid. In this kind of situation, what is the sequence of tissue biopsies you generally pursue? Is it the bone marrow? Do you go to the fat pad? Or do you go straight to the endomyocardial biopsy? So you can reasonably justify uh, any of those, but with the caveat that uh, if you don't go straight to the cardiac biopsy, you need to very, very quickly go there if the other testing is indeterminate. So Fat pad biopsies have the advantage of being the least invasive test. In fact, it can just be done in the office. The problem is that, A, uh, the yield isn't great. You'll read that it's uh, upwards of 80% uh, in AL amyloidosis and probably in very specialized hands and with very good pathologists uh, who are very experienced with amyloid, that's the case. But it's not reliable at that. And, and uh, in, in our experience, the false negative rate is quite a bit higher than that. The other problem is that remember that the key is not just making a diagnosis of amyloidosis, but subtyping it. And sometimes there's enough tissue for the pathologist to say that, yes, there are Congo red positive deposits, but not enough tissue to subtype. And here's the thing. For AL amyloidosis or AL cardiac amyloidosis, I would think of it as a near emergency to get to make the diagnosis. That disease can progress extremely quickly and uh, uh, days and weeks can matter in terms of the outcomes of the patient. Uh, so if you have the capability at your institution of uh, endomyocardial biopsy and skilled hands, generally I would recommend going straight to that. The nice thing about amyloidosis is that when you biopsy the clinically involved organs, so in the context of our discussion, the heart, you essentially have a 100% sensitivity and specificity, which is very different from other infiltrative diseases like sarcoidosis. Um, so uh, from my perspective, uh, going to where the money is to get the uh, correct and accurate diagnosis quickly so the patient can, can start therapy is the most important for a disease that can really gallop along quite quickly. That's perfect. So I guess we just um, have to get to the heart of the matter, so to speak. <laughs> Indeed. And I should say just a quick word about the, uh, the bone marrow biopsy. So the patient will end up getting a bone marrow biopsy because uh, in the scenario provided, you've already proven that they have uh, a monoclonal gammopathy of some sort. However, what you're trying to find is not that they have abnormal plasma cells. You pretty much know that already. What you're really trying to find is on that biopsy is are there amyloid deposits, which actually most of the time you won't find in the bone marrow. But if you do, again, there has to be enough to subtype. And B, secondarily, do they meet qualifications for having myeloma? But even there, uh, that's based on the percentage of, uh, of plasma cells in the bone marrow and usually is not the rate-limiting step to deciding whether or not a patient has a treatment indication or not. So you're going to do the bone marrow biopsy, but believe it or not, for this hematologic malignancy, it is not the most important biopsy that you're doing. That's very helpful. And you kind of alluded to this already, but oftentimes we don't come up with a diagnosis of cardiac amyloid until the pathology is well established. Do you think there is a screening strategy that we could use that would be able to diagnose this more early on in its course? 
Yeah. Well, I think here we have to very much differentiate between transthyretin amyloid and AL amyloid. And I know you're speaking with someone else uh, primarily about uh, transthyretin amyloid, but when we're talking diagnostically, we, we have to think about both. So transthyretin amyloid uh, is First off, not rare. In fact, in the uh, right mm -hmm. uh, patient population, it's downright common. Mm -hmm. uh, B, progresses at a relatively slow rate. Uh, C, has a ability to be non-invasively diagnosed fairly inexpensively and accurately as long as you follow the right sequence. And D, can now be effectively treated, not cured, but effectively treated. Uh, so for transthyretin amyloidosis, I actually do think that, a, and we published on this last year, that a uh, screening uh, policy uh, in the right patient population makes sense, which we put forth, a task force, uh, the privilege of, of co-leading put forth that anybody uh, who's above a certain age, uh, 65 in men, 70 in women, who have wall thickness above 14 millimeters uh, in, in their ventricular septum or have any red flag criteria like carpal tunnel, uh, we would suggest screening. Now, that's for transthyretin amyloid. For AL amyloid, uh, it is a considerably less common uh, disease than transthyretin amyloid. Um, certainly, there's no widespread screening program of, of any population demographics that would make sense. I would say anybody with a known monoclonal gammopathy, whether it's MGUS, myeloma, Waldenstrom's, uh, it is sensible to do some very basic screening, such as one could check for basic cardiobiomarkers, check an echo, make sure there's no evidence uh, that they actually have amyloid deposition. I'm hoping the day will come fairly soon where there's reliable enough imaging that one could do uh, probably nuclear-based imaging to see if there's any uptake. But we're not quite at that point yet. So no, I wouldn't generally recommend screening for AL amyloid, but you do need to have a high index of suspicion when the right clinical clues are there. And then once you have that suspicion to quickly move towards a, a getting a diagnosis. That's very helpful. So it sounds like the justification for screening early for TTR amyloid, that make a lot of sense because it is a lot more common that was once believed, uh, and we have more effective treatment strategies than we once had. Right. In fact, we, I, I might say we have treatment options, which we didn't <laughs> used to have. And, you know, so if you think about what makes a good screening test, it has to have a high enough prevalence in the patient population whom you're screening. You have to have an accurate and preferably non-invasive uh, testing modality, and you have to have an effective treatment if you make the diagnosis. So as long as you're picking the right patient population, it checks all those boxes for transthyretin amyloid, but in a way that it doesn't for AL. Mm -hmm. Um, and in general, how do you think the medical management of patients with a diagnosis of cardiac amyloid, you know, where whether it be AL or TTR, is different from the treatment in our routine heart failure patients, either HEFPEF or those with reduced ejection fraction as well? Sure. So I, I like to uh, think, and this is how I describe it to patients, that when they have a diagnosis of systemic amyloidosis, we want to think about their treatment on two parallel paths. Path one is what can we do to uh, treat the underlying cause of their amyloidosis? So for transthyretin, of course, right now it's tefamidus. Uh, for people with cardiac involvement, hopefully uh, more uh, therapies to come. Uh, for AL amyloidosis, it is with effective chemo and immunotherapy, as I imagine we'll be getting to in a few minutes. And uh, what I'd emphasize is that that is importance one, two, and three in treating the disease, far more important than anything else. Now, 
Part two, also still important, however, is to treat the manifestations of the organ dysfunction that has occurred from amyloid infiltration. So from the cardiac standpoint, that's mainly managing their clinical heart failure and their arrhythmias. So uh, what that mainly involves in patients with uh, cardiac amyloidosis is volume management, uh, first and foremost. Uh, They are particularly AL patients, uh, tend to uh, be quite volume overloaded uh, and generally quite underdiuresed. And that's because patients with AL amyloidosis will usually have some, at least some degree of autonomic dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have relatively smaller cavities, uh, often some chronotropic incompetence, uh, and they will, uh, and they will, if they have renal involvement, uh, will often be quite hypoalbuminemic um, and have low circulating volume. And so for all those reasons, they tend to run hypotensive um, and they can easily have renal dysfunction either from hypoperfusion or from direct renal involvement. And so the mistake is to just let them drown in fluid. And mm-hmm. that's what often happens. So, uh, so first and foremost is getting proper volume uh, management with salt restriction and diuretics. Um, if they have lots of edema, uh, compression stockings uh, can be of help. And if they're really running into problems with uh, significant hypotension, particularly postural hypotension, this is a group in whom midodrine uh, can be helpful. Uh, what is generally not helpful are the traditional neurohormonal blockading agents that we think about, certainly for heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction, uh, namely beta blockers and ren- renin-angiotensin aldosterone system uh, blockers. Uh, and that's for a couple of reasons. Uh, first off, the reason why those classes of medicines are uh, so useful for most patients with HEFREF is that the progression of that disease uh, tends to be because largely because of the neurohormonal uh, upregulation, whereas the progression of the disease here is really, first and foremost, the progressive amyloid infiltration. Uh, secondly is uh, the hypotension that I just alluded to, particularly the postural hypotension, which both of those agents will worsen. Mm-hmm. And then third is, from a, from a rhythm standpoint, uh, heart block is uh, common in the disease, and uh, uh, as well as just overall sinus node dysfunction and chronotropic incompetence. Um, and patients, because of having small cavities, will often be somewhat dependent on a higher heart rate. So generally, unless it's needed for control of rapid ventricular response from atrial arrhythmias, generally you want to avoid beta blockers, you want to avoid uh, RAS inhibitors, um, and uh, it's really about volume management and rhythm management. Happy to address the rhythm management now or later, whatever you prefer. I sure, I'd love to hear it. Sure. So uh, really, I would divide those into uh, the uh, atrial arrhythmias, ventricular arrhythmias, and then uh, pacemaker indications. So the the easiest is the pacemaker indications. Uh, They, like anyone, if they have symptomatic bradycardia, uh, a pacemaker is appropriate. And again, heart block is uh, reasonably common, although even more so probably for transthyretin patients. Um, From a uh, atrial arrhythmia standpoint, certainly atrial fibrillation and flutter are common. Uh, We know, and there's uh, both from clinical experience, and now there's some pretty good data to say that the rates of atrial thrombus are particularly high in patients with uh, amyloid cardiomyopathy, likely because their uh, atria are so diseased and the flows are so low. Um, And so it's generally recommended that uh, a transesophageal electrocardiogram be performed before any cardioversion, regardless of whether the patient has been on adequate systemic anticoagulation beforehand. Um, often patients will poorly tolerate atrial arrhythmias. So um, if you can maintain sinus rhythm, it can often be helpful. But of course, we know there are patients who that's not going to be possible uh, with, and ultimately they uh, just need a ray control and anticoagulation. 
anticoagulation strategy. Uh, atrial fibrillation ablations are occasionally done, but certainly much less successful for this disease because, again, of the uh, diffuse amyloid infiltration of the atria than for uh, most other indications. From a ventricular arrhythmia standpoint, uh, this is less clear how to handle. So the general thinking has traditionally been not to place defibrillators in patients uh, with cardiac amyloidosis, but that really came from an era when the prognosis was truly dreadful in the disease, um, and placing a primary prevention defibrillator didn't make any sense because uh, the life expectancy was not enough where that would make sense. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in fact, often all you would be doing would be uh, condemning your patients to having uh, ICD shocks at the end of their life. Uh, that, of course, has thankfully changed as therapies have improved. Right. And um, we and others have published looking at, well, what are the rates of ventricular arrhythmias and how effective are defibrillators? Because that was one of the other myths was that um, defibrillators are generally ineffective at, uh, at resuscitating patients from ventricular arrhythmias. But again, that was from an era when they would put ICDs in patients with absolutely hearts completely full of amyloid, and it would either fail to convert them or they uh, convert and be left in, in PEA. So uh, that's clearly not the case now. If you put defibrillators in, they are the vast majority of the time they will effectively convert the patient. So our policy, albeit it, this is not based on a high level of evidence, but our policy is that for patients with AL amyloidosis who are clearly at higher risks of, of ventricular arrhythmias leading to sudden death than patients with transthyretin amyloidosis, that as long as they have a life expectancy greater than a year, which is the large majority of them. We offer screening, typically with a Xiopatch. And if we see any significant burden of NSVT, we offer them a, a defibrillator. Or of course, if they have a high risk sounding history, we will also offer them a defibrillator. That, no, that makes a lot of sense. And moving along the same um, train of thought in terms of device therapy for cardiac amyloid patients, what are your thoughts about the effectiveness of uh, CRT in these patients in the right setting? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the key is is the last few words you said in the right setting. Um, they the patients, from my experience, don't tend to benefit as much from CRT with conduction disease as uh, many other cardiomyopathy patients. And indeed, when you look at their uh, ventricles, they don't tend to be nearly as desynchronous. Um, that being said, if you have a patient with a wide left bundle, um, uh, it's certainly worth a try. And if you're putting a device in and you expect that they're going to be chronically ventricularly paced, I think pretty much all of us would prefer CRT rather than RV pacing. But um, I would say most patients, uh, that's the, most patients do not need CRT, but if, if they're going to be chronically paced or have a wide left bundle, sure. Gotcha. And just to follow up with about atrial arrhythmias and strategies. So if you had a patient in clinic, for example, who presents with cardiac amyloid and has large dilated atria on echo, but really no history of arrhythmia, do you, like you had mentioned for ventricular arrhythmias, send them out home on a Xiopatch and then anticoagulate based on evidence of atrial arrhythmia on monitoring or does it depend on what you see on the echo findings just because of such a large thrombus burden in the atrium that can develop and obviously then be an inciting event for stroke in these individuals? 
Yeah, I have an extremely low threshold to uh, anticoagulate uh, in patients with cardiac amyloidosis for the reasons discussed. So um, if, if certainly if we ever capture them in atrial fibrillation, uh, that would be a reason to, uh, as far as I'm concerned, have lifelong anticoagulation in the absence of a strong contraindication. And again, we will generally, unless we're talking about somebody with a very poor life expectancy, we will generally uh, do a zyopatch monitoring anyway to look also for ventricular mm-hmm. arrhythmias. And again, if we can catch really any bird, uh, more than I guess a couple of beats of, of, uh, of atrial fibrillation or flutter, we would generally recommend anticoagulation. The, the risk of thrombus is just so high in these patients. And um, talking about the general medical management of these patients, are there any specific medications we should avoid for cardiac amyloidosis? We all learned in medical school that we shouldn't be using digoxin and calcium channel blockers for yeah, and that uh, at first it is bizarre that that's one of the things that are taught in medical school, and yet it seems ubiquitous. <laughs> it's, it's a very specific thing. But and uh, like many things taught in medical school, it's not necessarily completely true. Um, <laughs> but, so the the concern comes from the fact that many medicines uh, bind to amyloid proteins, and uh, uh, including and, and certainly uh, specifically uh, calcium blockers and digoxin. And so, for example, there's concern that even if you have somebody at a typical therapeutic dose of oral digoxin, and maybe you maybe you even check a serum level and it's where it's within the range you might get, um, that they might actually still have digitoxicity where it counts in the heart because they're having uh, local binding of, of digoxin. And so uh, for years, it was sort of a complete contraindication you're never going to use. Now, I will say that uh, most of us uh, in the field are willing to use it at low doses, uh, particularly in transthyretin amyloid, uh, if you if it's really needed for rate control. As I was mentioning before, um, you know when you're trying to rate control. Uh, there's not great options here. Uh, we talked about the downside of beta blockers. Calcium blockers have both similar downsides and this concern about, again, binding to amyloid fibrils. We just talked about digoxin. You're quickly running out of options. So I, I would say I think pretty much all of us who, who care for patients in this field have used digoxin occasionally. Again, I think probably a little bit more with TTR, but it's, I wouldn't rule it out for AL either. Um, but it specifically and only for rate control of, of atrial arrhythmias, there's certainly not a role, uh, as far as I'm concerned, for any of those medications in in the absence of that. Being an advanced heart failure fellow, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the role for advanced strategies in these patients, specifically transplant or LVAD, palliative care, and your thoughts regarding that and folks who really have other limited options in terms of treatment. Sure. Well, first, I'll get on my soapbox and say that I hate the term advanced strategies. Uh, I actually don't think we we should consider transplants uh, and mechanical support advanced strategies for any form of heart failure. I think the better term would be salvage therapies of something that you're happy to have, but uh, would rather not need to use. And the advanced strategy is being able to manage the patient where you don't need those things. But I will now get off my soapbox. I do do like that. I I like that term as well. I think I'll start using it from now on if you don't mind. (laughs) You know, it was one of our residents here who actually went into palliative care, which I suppose makes sense, a few years ago, who on CCU rounds, that when I had gotten on my soapbox, had suggested the term. And I actually think it's perfect. And uh, maybe maybe it's uh, the Cardio Nerds podcast that will start uh, getting this popularized uh, around the country. But Elvish therapies. One can only hope. Yes. yes. (laughs) Starting day. Exactly. But anyhow, um, to answer your your question directly, um, so uh, let's separate them into mechanics 
mechanical circulatory support and transplant because I think it's very different for this disease. Uh, for mechanical circulatory support, uh, generally these patients are very poor candidates, and the, there's a couple of reasons. Number one is that the problem is biventricular. Uh, it's every bit as much an RV problem as it is an LV problem. Uh, so uh, putting an LVAD uh, generally uh, is not a great option. Now, Again, never say never. Are there ever patients uh, who uh, who do seem to get a real benefit out of it? Uh, yes, um, I would say it tends to be done more for transthyretin than AL when it is done. Uh, but uh, and you don't, at least then don't have the immunosuppression of the chemotherapy uh, side of things. Um, but generally, a poor option for these patients. Um, the uh, the other problem is, of course, they often have small cavities uh, because of the uh, wall infiltration. So mm-hmm. all the problems that go with that with uh, with an LVAD. Okay, now, separately from transplant, so there uh, had long been an idea that you do not transplant these patients because their outcomes are terrible. Um, and that was from a time when when the chemotherapy options uh, were dreadful, as, as we'll probably get to in a moment. Um, and uh, they also did not pick patients well, so that they would pick patients who had multi-organ involvement of AL amyloidosis, replace their heart, and they would still be left with very dysfunctional kidneys, liver, GI tract, etc., and not surprisingly wouldn't do well. So I would say starting around uh, the early uh, to mid-2000s, a few places in the U.S. uh, started carefully selecting patients, and this was around the same time that the chemo options had significantly improved, and we and others have shown, in fact, we just published our most recent experience uh, on this, uh, we and others have shown that as long as you pick your patients very carefully, and for the ones who have AL amyloid, give them effective chemoimmunotherapy to control their light chains, that they can do very well. And so uh, in our uh, recent cohort uh, of over 30 patients who were uh, transplanted over about a 10-year period, our survival among our amyloid patients has actually been slightly better than our overall transplant survival period. Wow. And and, uh, and we haven't lost one patient due to recurrence of amyloid in the new heart. So uh, the key is you have to pick the patients very carefully. It has to be done at a center that has experience with this. And I would say, particularly for AL amyloid, if it's going to be done, uh, you really want it to be done at a center with experience, and and you want to be very vigilant to controlling the light chains afterwards. Wonderful. And I'm wondering, you know, one thing that that we run into is a specific strategy for supporting these patients while you're trying to get them to these salvage therapies. Um, You know, because I think with folks with cardiac amyloid, that restrictive physiology is a little bit different than what we're used to treating in the kind of general shock patients that may have big dilated ventricles. And it may be, as you mentioned, more left-sided heart failure than biventricular dysfunction and how, how you keep these folks stable trying to get to transplant to another strategy. Yeah, so uh, it's it's not easy. And uh, there was a nice uh, abstract that was uh, a few years ago out of MGH where they looked at their experience and they looked at uh, their weightless mortality for their amyloid patients and all other patients. And like the all other patients seem to go on for years without getting transplants, which one could just, that, that's a topic for another day. Uh, but the AL patients, if they didn't get transplants, they 
they all were dead within a couple of months. I mean, it was it was amazing. So it is a challenge uh, because, again, it's mainly a disease of diastolic dysfunction, which we obviously don't have great options. We talked about the uh, lack of utility of, of mechanical support for these patients. So, you know, do they get any benefit out of uh, inotropes? Yes. I mean, in terms of the short-term benefits, uh, yes. Uh, some of it, honestly, is probably getting their heart rate up. And uh, some of it is that, yes, they probably do get a little bit of uh, of extra inotropy and lucitropy uh, from them. Uh, but you're talking about a, uh, you know, inotropes we know aren't great, even intermediate term solutions for heart failures, heart failure patients in general, uh, and uh, even less so in amyloid. And obviously, the arrhythmia risk is very real. So um, the key, the, the real key is if they're heading towards transplant is trying to uh, of course, see if you can get them transplanted uh, before they quite get that ill. No, that, that makes a lot of sense and certainly sounds like a difficult position when these patients come in, in shock. Now, as a, you know, as a leader in cardio-oncology, I have to ask, are there notable cardiovascular toxicities of amyloid treatments that cardiologists should be aware of, especially as we're co-managing these patients with our oncologists? And just for the audience, oncologists of 2020 certainly are better equipped with multiple strategies for amyloidosis including hematopoietic stem cell transplant and numerous classes of agents, including steroids, notably dexamethasone, proteasome inhibitors like bortezomib and carfilzomib, immunomodulators like thalidomide, lenalidomide, pamelidomide, cytotoxic agents like cyclophosphamide, and a host of newer agents like daratumumab, which is an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody against the cell surface protein. So when we think about co-managing all these patients on different agents, possibly multiple lines of therapies in the past, um, are there anything that you think cardiologists should at least be aware of? Yes, I, I'm glad you asked. And, I, and if you don't mind, I'm going to broaden the question a tiny bit to, to just uh, overview the uh, hematologic therapy yes. as a whole, recognizing the audience here are, are cardiologists, not hematologists. But I think the bottom line is if you are going to be co-managing these, these patients, you have to have some understanding of the treatments, what the options are, and what the goals are. So I'll just take a quick moment to, to highlight those things. Sounds great. So, and I would say, by the way, that um, getting to that point, that it's my firm belief that we need to, as a field, democratize transthyretin amyloid diagnosis and treatment and undemocratize uh, AL amyloidosis uh, diagnosis and treatment, meaning that transthyretin amyloidosis is common. Uh, the diagnosis is actually reasonably straightforward. Um, and the treatments, at least as of 2020, is very simple. Right now, it's a it's, it's a one approved treatment, which is a once a day pill uh, without toxicities. Uh, AL amyloidosis is completely different. It involves multiple organs. The diagnosis can be tricky. Understanding light chains and the and all the different therapy options is is definitely uh, uh, tricky. When to switch uh, uh, switch chemo or immunotherapy? When you should consider uh, stem cell transplant, etc. So, um, whereas I would love to see community cardiologists diagnosing and treating transthyretin amyloidosis, not feeling the need that every one of those patients ends up needing to be referred to a specialty center. I, I feel the opposite about AL amyloidosis, that those patients should all be offered an early consultation at a, a center of excellence for treating the disease. They may get all their chemotherapy and whatnot locally, of course, uh, but it's really something where I think that patients benefit uh, from at least a, a, a uh, early consultation at the specialty center. 
Now, in terms of the uh, hematologic treatments, so one thing that's a very important concept is that the goal is not to get a patient a specific kind of therapy. The goal is to control the light chains. Um, And that may seem obvious, but I would say historically and still I feel a lot of the time it's not viewed that way. And what I mean by that is when the disease first was being treated, the chemotherapy, the traditional chemotherapy options were very limited and not very effective. It was essentially the alkylator melphalan plus a steroid. And uh, it just wasn't very effective. And so the idea was, well, gee, I wonder if there's a way to give them more chemotherapy. But the problem was that if you give them more of an alkylator, melphalan or cytoxin, uh, you would wipe out their bone marrow. And so, okay, we have a way to deal with that. We give them a higher dose of an alkylator, and then we rescue them with an auto stem cell transplant. Important to recognize we're always talking about auto stem cell transplant with this disease, never aloe. Aloes are not done because they're considered too toxic in this disease. It's always auto transplant, meaning you're getting your own cells back. So there's no graft versus tumor effect. All you are achieving with an auto stem cell transplant is the ability to give a higher dose of a single kind of chemotherapy, namely an alkylator, than you could otherwise give. So it, it seemed to make sense hey, this will probably do better. We can give higher doses. So there was a host of data uh, that was all observational that said people who got stem cell transplants did better. They lived longer. But of course, there was a a huge built-in bias there, which is that there's a reason why some patients got stem cell transplants and others don't. Uh, And usually the ones who were getting the stem cell transplants were much less ill or better candidates for all the host of reasons that people can be better candidates uh, than the ones who did not get stem cell transplants. So of course, what was needed was a randomized trial. Well, fortunately, there was one. So there is one and only one randomized trial that ever compared standard chemotherapy to stem cell transplant. It was done in France in the early to mid-2000s. The chemo that people were randomized to was the -the state-of-the-art chemo at the time, which sadly was just melphalan and steroid. (laughs) Um, And auto stem cell transplant was then what it is now. That hasn't really changed for the disease. So everybody's ready for the results to see that stem cell transplants is going to blow chemo out of the water. Well, guess what happens? There is a statistically significantly better survival in the standard chemo arm over the stem cell transplant arm. Now, the stem cell transplant advocates came back and said, well, hold on. It was a small study, 100 patients. It was uh, done in France, a bunch of small centers. Maybe they didn't really know what they were doing. The transplant-related mortality was too high. But thankfully, the authors had built in pre-built in a six-month landmark analysis saying, let's look at survival also as a secondary endpoint of those patients who got their treatment and lived at least six months. So now we're taking out the transplant-related mortality, right? Still, the trend was the survival trend, no longer statistically significant, but the survival trend still in favor of standard chemo. So hard to look at that data and say that we have good evidence to support stem cell transplant as the preferred uh, modality for this than standard chemo. Now, realize this. The uh, options for chemo and immunotherapy uh, over the last 15 years have absolutely exploded, as you nicely outlined up front. 
And so, um, whereas auto stem cell transplant really hasn't changed to the point where, and we just published our data here and others, uh, including uh, BU recently published their data looking at survival. And so in rough numbers across the various stages of AL amyloidosis, survival has tripled over the last decade compared to what it was before. And that includes at a place like Stanford, where we hardly do any stem cell transplant for this disease. So it's not, it's not because of other things. It's because the chemo's gotten better. So uh, what all that says to me is, is that not only should stem cell transplant not be the goal with this uh, disease, but as far as I'm concerned, it really should not be the upfront or kind of first thing that you're trying to get a patient to in almost anyone, where really what you're trying to do is control the light chains to do it with the least toxicity possible, and hopefully for the longest term possible. And we now have such a host of various chemo and immunotherapy options that thankfully, it's the rare patient now that we can't get somewhere between good and great control of their light chains. Um, and if one thing's not working or is intolerable, you can move to something else. And you highlighted daratumumab, which has been an absolute game changer in this disease. It's an immunotherapy. It is typically extremely well tolerated by patients and not for everybody, but for more than with any other treatment we've had, uh, people will often have incredibly good responses from a light chain standpoint. Um, so I know that's a long-winded answer, but it, it's, uh, and, and, and then I'm going to get to your actual question, uh, <laughs> but, it, but it is such a key thing because in many parts of the country, less so, frankly, in other parts of the world, but in this country, there's a very ingrained uh, belief of we've got to try to get our patients to stem cell transplant, and the data just doesn't support that. Now, to answer your specific question about toxicities of therapies, thankfully, the vast majority of the agents we use for this disease don't have specific cardiac toxicity. The uh, two things I would say are worth knowing about. One is that some of them, and in particular the IMIDs, uh, have an increased thrombosis rate, uh, um, uh, mainly venous, uh, but so they, they will generally need to be on some sort of thrombotic prophylaxis, uh, either aspirin or systemic anticoagulation. Uh, the other one is carfilzomib. Um, carfilzomib is uh, a proteasome inhibitor. Uh, it's often used if a patient has uh, failed uh, bortezomib, which is an earlier generation form. There is clearly a real degree of carfilzomib cardiac toxicity. I would say that from my experience, I think it's probably more worried about than actually happens, but it certainly can happen. Um, it is not one of systolic dysfunction. It's very clear. There's uh, very good evidence with ECHO studies in patients with myeloma, who are the main ones who get it, who do not develop any systolic dysfunction. But you can get some diastolic heart failure in those patients above what patients who are on placebo or alternate uh, agents uh, get. It can also cause some degree of increased thrombosis risk and probably in some patient populations, increased blood pressure. So I would say carfilzomib, I would never rule out for the disease, uh, but uh, for cardiac amyloid, you're never going to jump right to it as your first option uh, because of these concerns. You know, it's just um, amazing to me how different the prognosis of either type of cardiac amyloidosis is now compared to just when I was in medical school. And I think it's just um, something that we don't realize enough how the advances that we have made as a field really impact the lives of the patients that we see on day to day. So I think it's just, a, it's really fantastic. It's, it's an amazing thing. It's, it's, and patients, you know, they'll get the diagnosis. And the first thing, of course, they'll do typically is go online and read about it. And unfortunately, still most of what they read, uh, it, it, they think they're going to be dead in six months. And 
uh, save, but for the patients with the most advanced disease when they get diagnosed, thankfully that's not the case. And so it's nice to be able to quickly dispel those myths when they come into clinic because they know that that was a different era. We actually do have lots of effective treatments for you now. It's incredible. Yeah, it's wonderful. So Dr. Wattles, I have one last question for you. You are a person who has many hats. Not only are you a wonderful clinician, a scientist, an educator, a leader, and those are just naming a few, but I'm particularly interested in your medical education hat. On the highly successful track that brought you here today, what got you interested in graduate medical education and how does one, especially one with such a busy career as a cardiovascular clinician scientist, become a program director of a residency program? Well, um, okay. So I'd say first off, uh, one of the great things about academic medicine in general is that for people who are interested in the various parts of the tripartite mission of academic medicine, that is clinical care, research, and education, that you can, you do have the opportunity uh, to wear multiple, including all three of those hats, should you want, and should should that uh, should that be of interest to you. Now, it isn't of interest to everybody. Uh, some people, really, it's the science part that really excites them, or it's the clinical part that really excites them much more than some of the other parts, or the education part. And that's fine. That's great for them. Um, but one of the nice things, if you do enjoy all, all three, is that that is feasible. And um, as a as a clinical researcher, um, it is much more feasible to be able to do that along with other parts of one's career, much more so than, say, a, a, a typical bench uh, researcher. My own view, and this is what I tell our residents or medical students if they ask me for advice, is that... Um, it's sort of silly to plot out one's exact career path of the, you know, what am I going to be doing uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, uh, because fate will always mock you. And you have no idea, uh, you have no idea how your life is going to change, what opportunities are, are, are going to come up, what your interests are going to change, um, etc. In fact, amyloidosis was something that uh, I only became interested at really in the last oh, year, year and a half of fellowship. It had never been an interest before then. Um, and if you had asked me uh, going into fellowship, uh, uh, do, do you see amyloidosis being part of your career? Never would have. Uh, I was focusing on it from a research side, completely different area at the time. Um, so you never know. Um, so what I would say from an education standpoint is that um, you know, similarly, you can't say, okay, in five years, I'm going to be program director, among other reasons. A lot of this is just serendipity, the opportunity coming up uh, at, a, at the right time that aligns for you and makes and somebody thinks of you and makes sense for you career-wise, et cetera. Rather, I would say that for any any listeners who might be interested in education being a part of their career, that the the thing to do when one joins the, if one's joining the faculty, is at the beginning, you've just got to do it. Um, you're not likely to be given vast swaths of protected time to do it. But the good news is, is that not that many people really want to spend that much time doing it as part of their career. I mean, a lot of people in academic medicine, they enjoy teaching students or residents or fellows when when they're on rounds or whatnot. But beyond that, that's not accurate. For, there, are, there are people who do, but most people don't. And um, if you are somebody who really does enjoy that, uh, then go to the residency program director or the fellowship director or the clerkship director or whomever and put yourself forward as somebody who is interested in that and just say, look, when opportunities come up to 
give talks, to uh, to lead physical diagnosis sessions, to yeah, X, Y, and Z, to come to morning report as a discussion, whatever it may be, and to just be out there. And then as positions do come up, and it may not be, it may be in a, in a, in a clerkship, it may be in a fellowship, it may be in a residency firm, whatever it may be, but as positions do come up, if you're somebody who was passionate about it and who's been doing it, then they will think about you. And now you will actually get real career support uh, for it. Um, and that's really the, the pathway. Personally, for me, I really do enjoy all three of those aspects of my career. I would not want to give up any of them. And uh, that's, what, again, the great thing about, about academic medicine is that you can. That's, um, that's really amazing to hear Dr. Rotellis. And, you know, I've noticed whenever I've heard a leader talk about their path, the concepts of serendipity and opportunity always come up. But I just, I know, and I can only imagine how much passion and initiative to seize those opportunities were just as essential. And, uh, you know, before we end, I'd like to convey a very heartfelt hellos from two of my stellar co-fellows, Grant Henderson, Ellen Kiang, who were, of course, your residents in the past and are definitely keeping up Stanford's good name here with their brilliance and hard work as fellows. So Alan wrote to us that Dr. Rotellis is clearly someone who is incredibly invested in the residency program and cares deeply about the well-being and success of his trainees. I myself have reached out to him on several occasions for help and each time I received advice that was prompt, personalized, comprehensive, and extremely high yield. Despite how busy he is, he always seems to prioritize his residence at the top, and I know many others who feel the same way. Grant Henderson wrote to us that Dr. Watellis is great in the CCU. Each morning rounds are like a meticulously fashioned lecture on cardiac physiology, hemodynamics, pharmacology, and clinical decision-making tailored to each patient. These lectures, of course, are not meticulously fashioned or are somehow developed on the fly. The teaching, wry wit, and storytelling that accompanies each new patient presentation makes his rounds delightful and edifying. It's hard to spend a couple of weeks rounding with him in the CCU and not wanting to become a cardiologist or at least a deeply thoughtful clinician. So Dr. Tellis, you've clearly taught and inspired generations of Stanford trainees, and we want to thank you for doing the same for us cardio nerds today. It's exceptionally uh, kind of you and, and uh, both of you and, and of uh, Grant and Alan. And I'm so happy that we've uh, been able to uh, send our superb Stanford residents to, uh, to great programs around the country. And thanks for the invitation, the opportunity to, uh, to join you today. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. Don't forget to check out the amazing illustration that Kareen prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to CardioNerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now a flutter moment. Hi, CardioNerds. I'm Lois Adamski, the program coordinator of the Cardiovascular Medicine Fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. What makes my heart flutter is that each year I'm gifted with 39, soon to be increased to 42, of the most amazing people to share my day with. I started out 36 years ago being their little sister and through the years have progressed to being mom, which is a very honorable title to hold in this program. 
From guiding them in the right direction to plot their way through this crazy fellowship, to sharing our life events, watching their children grow, and all of our daily laughter and shenanigans, I could not ask for a better way to spend my time when I'm not with my family. They truly make coming to work a pleasure, and I would not trade them or these years for anything. I would like to take this moment to thank those near and far for their kindness, support, and for the lifelong friendships that I have been blessed with over these years. I will treasure these memories always and look forward to making new ones over the next few years.